turn to James chapter 5. If you're using one of the chairback Bibles nearby or in front of you, you'll find tonight's text on page 1013. We want to look at the first six verses of James, perhaps the apex of all of his holy warnings in this book comes now in our text tonight. So let me read these verses for us and and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So listen now as, as God speaks to you through his perfect word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on, luxury, on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have breathed out this word of instruction for us, that we might know its power in our lives. We know that it is living and active, that it means to pierce our hearts this evening, and by your Spirit, let this sword indeed pierce our souls, that it would divide us, that it would rebuke us, that it would exhort us, that it would challenge us, that we might ever renew our faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his commands as it relates to how we use our money, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We read through any part of early church history, so just the first few centuries after our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, You'll come across stories, you'll perhaps even read sermons from these early church fathers, men we often refer to as the patristics, And you'll find no small number of times of stories and sermons where these men seem to explode and even erupt in holy and righteous or sometimes not so righteous anger. I recall a time reading about Theodoret of Cyrus. It was when one of his theological opponents had died and he wrote to a friend this. At last the villain is gone. The Lord, knowing that this man's spite has been growing daily and harming the body of Christ, has cut him off like the plague, taken away the reproach of Israel. The living are delighted by his departure. Perhaps the dead are sorry at his arrival. Indeed, we ought to be alarmed. They might be so annoyed by his presence among them that they send him back to us on earth. You don't have to get very long into many early church fathers' ministries to know that they understood the power of a harsh word, a stunning word even. It's in keeping, isn't it, with some of the greatest preachers that you'll find throughout the Bible itself. You can think of that singular moment in Exodus chapter 32 where Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he sees this golden calf that Aaron says just came out of the fire and... 
We're told that he burned hot against the idolatry of God's people. You can think of no small number of Old Testament prophets that God summoned to speak words of warning, even harsh rebukes against his covenant people as they fell further into unrepentance and their own unbelief. Or even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you can think of Matthew chapter 23 and his self-righteous or his righteous anger at the self-righteousness of the Pharisees as he utters these curses and woes that surely if we were there that day as a fly on the wall, we would have been stunned with the degree of vehemence that our Lord could erupt with over sin. I wonder when the last time was that you exploded in righteous anger. Have you ever erupted in righteous furor? What was it over? James is going to erupt tonight. Kids, you think of him like an apostolic volcano. He's been observing something. He's been watching something. He's been hearing something. It's as though in his spirit, his righteous Holy Spirit, he gets to this breaking point tonight and he's going to erupt. And it's over this matter of money. And that he's erupting over money ought not to surprise us. If you just glance back, turn a few pages perhaps in your Bible to chapter 1. You might recall that it was in verse 9 through 11 that he has already given us words related to warning the rich. We're told in verse 9 and 10, let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will, like a flower of the grass, pass away. The end of verse 11 says the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And if you skip over to chapter 2, verse 6, when he's discussing this sin of partiality, the The reader is paying attention to the rich and giving no interest to the poor. He says in verse 6 of chapter 2, Are not the rich ones those who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Helpful context for what we're going to look at tonight. And in chapter 5, James very much stands within this rich tradition of biblical spirituality that recognizes that few things show the reality of your heart's devotion to the Lord than as what you do with money does. I remember years ago sitting in this seminar with this expert in early church fathers and patristics. And uh, one afternoon we were, we were speaking about these kind of hallmarks, these defining characteristics of patristic piety, these things that were very important to the earliest church leaders. And at one point he was mentioning how all of these men in their sermons, you'll find these stunning declarations against a love of of money. And then he began to, as sometimes professors are prone to do in such settings, he just kind of off the cuff spun forth a, a very important application, but one that's not just important, it tends to stick with students. And he said, you know, I wonder if we've lost a lot of biblical piety in the Western church because we don't want to talk about money. Because surely the Bible wants to sanctify our bank accounts too. And so we're going to see a word of warning for the wealthy. That's the theme in our text tonight. We're going to notice verse 1, the condemnation of wealthy sinners Verse 2 through 6, it's the case against wealthy sinners. You want to know from the outset that James is functioning here as something like the prosecuting attorney, the judge, and the jury, all wrapped up into one person when he comes to his particular audience tonight. He's going to make a word, offer a word of condemnation of, of wealthy sinners before then he begins to show why that condemnation is deserved as he builds his case against wealthy sinners. So the condemnation, notice... 
The phrase that begins our text in chapter 5, verse 1. Same phrase that began our text last week in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now. This abrupt summons. Pay attention. Make sure you listen. Come now, you rich. So you want to pause right there, students, to ask a question of who are the rich people that James has in mind? Because it's certainly possible that he could be addressing rich, professing Christians in his audience, those early believers scattered throughout the ancient world. Or it could be that what he's doing here is he's actually addressing not those inside the church, but it's these wealthy sinners that are outside of the church, donning this role that so often belonged to the Old Testament prophet when he would preach to God's people about the sins that marked the culture around him. And most scholars today would tell you it's the second category. It's these wealthy sinners that are outside of the church that James has in mind here. And I think that's probably right, largely because if you just kind of scan your eyes through the text, you'll see number one, he holds out no opportunity for them to repent. Which leads to really the second thing, he's totally and utterly assured of their condemnation before the Lord. But at the same time, don't you think it's true? If that's correct, that he's addressing primarily those that are outside of the church, those that seem to be oppressing those that are inside of the church, these poor people that he's already mentioned in chapter 2. It's right, though, for us to reckon with the reality that by any ordinary definition, all of us stand in the room today rich and wealthy. Our Lord Jesus Christ, didn't he say in the, the parable of the sower, that sometimes that word is going to be sown among hearts, but the deceitfulness of riches will soon choke out that response of the word. And so what I want to do largely tonight is to speak directly to us as those that God has entrusted wealth to and understand what this text might be warning us against for perhaps you might fall in this category of the rich James has in mind. Well, we see the condemnation continues, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries. That are coming upon you. The word weep is the same one that's used in John chapter 11. If you remember that story of Lazarus being buried in the tomb. And Jesus comes and Lazarus' family is gathered around just weeping. They're wailing in anguish over the loss of their loved one. And you want to picture that and couple it with the other verb that's throbbing there in verse 1. Of howling. Kids, you can think about shrieking or screaming in anguish. And James is commanding that of those that he has in mind, that they would weep and howl for miseries are soon to dawn upon them. Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon was one that was taken from a text in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which speaks about the certainty of the sinner's foot slipping into God's vengeance. And in this Part of the sermon that still finds itself into English textbooks in normal public schools, even today, he, he pointedly and vividly paints this metaphor of, of what it means to have God's miseries soon to come upon you. He talks about someone holding a spider. Children, you can surely picture it, holding a spider over a fire. That spider is what? Leaping about, seemingly flying in the air, trying to get away from the fire. But soon enough, that, that spider is going to slip into the coming misery. And that's the very same idea, really, that James has with his audience here. There's a time coming when the condemnation is going to arrive, when the 
Miseries. It's important to recognize the plural. It's not just misery. It's manifold miseries are going to come upon the rich. And so you see, he's given the sentence, hasn't he, already? It's the condemnation. Miseries are coming upon you. And now what he's going to do in verses 2 through 6 is present his case. Why is it that this condemnation is deserved? And he gives, as any good attorney would do, very logical, clear evidence for his verdict. And what you're going to get is four lines of argumentation. So the first of which, argument number one, they hoard wealth. Okay, Notice verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, students, it's important to note here that James isn't condemning having wealth. I hope you see that. What he is condemning, however, is how you use the wealth. He's clearly talking to people that haven't understood the clear words of Jesus Christ that is in every way mirrored here in James, that we are not to store up treasures here on earth where rust and, or rust and moth destroy, but we're to store them up in heaven where they have a long everlasting heritage. So I wonder what you are doing with your wealth, storing it up here or storing it up there. Even that idea of corroding. Uh, kids, you might know that, that gold doesn't corrode in the way that he's talking about. But certainly it's true that money tends to corrode the heart because so often people can think that money brings the stability and the security and, and the safety in life. So then it corrodes your soul, it hardens your soul, it even ruins your soul against being able to look to the Lord Jesus Christ alone for stability, security, and, and safety. Maybe you know people in your life, perhaps you might even be in here tonight and you're in that place in your life where your true security comes with how much money is in that bank account. When it's full, you, you feel secure, you feel stable, you feel safe. But that statement, of course, it can't bring you any true safety. The only safety comes from God's statement of righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. Righteousness that's received by faith alone. Righteousness that's eternal. Righteousness that can't be corrupted. Righteousness that won't be corroded. So his first line of evidence. They've hoarded their wealth. You want to see number two. They have held back wages. Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. It's best to understand these people that James refers to as laborers. Now, they'd be something akin to what we have kind of in our culture today as, as day laborers. Those that were just working hard day in and day out for what would come to them at the end of the day. And maybe you've had a friend or perhaps a family member, and maybe even a church member you've known that's worked hard for a wage that was promised in the future, and then that wage never came. And there's just unusual devastation and, and disappointment and discouragement that comes from the wage promise never actually being provided. And James is saying that's the exact same thing that's happening with these rich people. They're dishonest. They're saying, I'm going to pay you this wage for this work, and when it comes to pay the wage, they're like, no, I'm just going to keep it back by fraud. And clearly the poor are crying out. You'll notice the end of verse 4. It's a cry that's reached to heaven. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Kids, it's important to know, just as you, you might recognize that God sees everything, that God too hears everything, even when it's a cry for justice, 
from his poor, impoverished children. He listens. So they've hoarded their wealth. These rich have held back wages. Notice, thirdly, verse 5, they've lived in self-indulgent luxury. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. I read an article not too long ago in Forbes magazine that reflected and commented on this boom of self-storage facilities and your ordinary urban and suburban places in America. And it reminded me of a story of a friend of mine who came over and visited America probably eight years ago, perhaps even longer than that. And there was a storage facility that had, was just being built by our house at the time. And he, he jokingly but, but truthfully was saying, you know, you should invest in a storage facility. You're guaranteed to make a profit. Because one thing that's true about you Americans is you have far too much stuff. That's quite true, isn't it, of so many? It's clearly in James' view here. And even it seems likely that they have indulged themselves in this luxury based upon the back-breaking work of these laborers that they refuse to pay. And so, notice the image at the end of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Kids, you can picture it, can't you, what James is saying here at the end of verse 5. He's, he's talking again about this agricultural metaphor where you're kind of fattening up the cows. You're giving them good rest, giving them good food. All the while, they're unaware of the reality that you're preparing them for the slaughterhouse. All the while, these rich people indulging themselves in luxury, not realizing that they're only preparing themselves for a slaughterhouse in God's judgment Line of evidence number four, verse six, they've murdered the godly. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's a somewhat enigmatic verse, isn't it, when you you glance at it? Because it seems, of course, overwhelmingly likely that James isn't referring to here this literal murder that's come from the rich people upon the poor people. What's much more likely is something that was much more common at this time where you would have these wealthy landowners that would take these poor people on as something like indebted servants. And then in time, they wouldn't pay them the wages. And so these indebted servants would now be further into debt and they would have to go to debtor's court. And the sentence of debtor's court would be that they would have to be banished away to prison, left to rot, and even to die. Therefore, the rich have murdered The godly, they've indulged in luxury, they've held back wages, they've hoarded their wealth. This is James' case against wealthy sinners. And take each one of those lines of argumentation and ask yourself, even in your own honesty and humility tonight, do any one of those apply to me? Have I hoarded that which God has given me to steward for the advance of his gospel? Have I held back payment on debts that are due If I employ people, have I given to them their due? Have I accrued for myself just luxury and comfort in life? This is a warning to the wealthy. One of the more memorable weeks of my young ministry was a time spent at a dear brother who's a a wonderful pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, and a few of us who were on staff at this church where I served at the time, we went out and more or less kind of spent the week at this brother's house, and 
He's a very faithful mentor and friend to us along the way. And by the end of the week, we were having a lunch with him on the way to the airport. And we were going to return back to to Dallas. And we asked for a picture of him uh, glaring into the, to the camera with his finger pointed in urgency. Because throughout the week, what we noticed is that he was always about the business, no matter who was in his house, who was in his office, who was in his church, of encouraging and exhorting. And so often the exhortation was nothing more than just a rebuke, a loving rebuke. And it became something of a badge of honor, has he rebuked you yet this week? And if you showed up and said no, you just say, well, just wait a few more hours. And you'll surely get the finger pointed at you. And I wonder if, as you read through James, you feel his, his finger of rebuke, poking and prodding, perhaps even pointing at your own heart. It's not the first time that he's done it, is it, in this letter? And so I want you to see, as we begin to close, I want you to see three simple things related to this warning. The first of which is the place of rebuke. The place of rebuke. We, we live in a time, don't we, where so often people are so infatuated and perhaps even overly fascinated with tone that we so often forget that what we say is actually more important than how we say it. But the Bible so often gives us occasion after occasion with this kind of vehemence that God actually rebukes people. When was the last time that God's word and spirit rebuked you? Do you have a doctrine of scripture that's one in which it's powerful and clear and true enough to actually rebuke you with that degree of of urgency that James brings forth? You see not just uh, the place of rebuke, you see the terror of retribution, don't you? The terror of of retribution. Verse 1, miseries are coming upon you. Verse 3, this corrosion will eat your flesh like fire. Verse 5, you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. So students, you must always reckon with the reality that the world is trying to get you to think that God's judgment is not true. That his promised recompense upon sinners is just a relic of outdated religion. But the Bible is here to say, no, it is not just real. It is genuinely that horrifying. It's genuinely that terrifying. It's genuinely coming. Which leads to the third point. The need for repentance. The place of rebuke. The terror of retribution and the need for repentance. Repentance. If you're a careful reader of James and student of James, you might take these verbs in verse 1, weeping, howling, and know that it's only a few paragraphs before that he essentially used the same ones. Glance back to chapter 4, verse 9, where James said, Be wretched and mourn and weep. We talked about that having this biblical reality of, of repentance. Whereas it seems as though in his address to these wealthy sinners, he's not holding out the possibility of repentance we know in the course of God's word even to you tonight, that he is indeed holding out not just the possibility of repentance, he's holding out the need of repentance. For here then, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to another group of people, to another church in Revelation chapter 3. You say that I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold that's refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and 
repent. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would work into our hearts the humility of your Son, Jesus Christ. That in honesty, we would reckon with what you have entrusted to us. Money, possessions, various stewardships. That you would grow us in our sacrifice, that you would grow us in our stewardship, that you would grow us in extending and advancing the gospel through what you have given to us. Lord, bring us that heart of repentance that we might never be included in this category of the wealthy sinners who deserve your condemnation and will receive it. For Lord, we want to be those who are sinners that do deserve that condemnation but have escaped it because of the word and work of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we...